Welcome to the Find Your Tove podcast. I'm Dr. Henry Graff. This is episode three, God's Not a Hearing a censorship beep hits different. Until this podcast, the title's been something typed out. Hashtag, at symbol, exclamation point, dollar sign. It was intentionally innocuous and nondescript. Whatever it was that Charlie Brown would say when the football was pulled away. The kind of thing you'd see in a speech bubble of a comic strip. I used an obscenicon. I'd used it for years. But until I googled it, I didn't know it had a name. Four of them, actually. Jarn, Niddle, Grolixes, or they can be called obscenicons. Hearing changed the vibe. That's what I was after when I used an obscenicon. In this episode, I'll cover critics, a 1972 psychology experiment, and bilingual wordplay. Let's jump in. Learn to listen to your critics. This is a ninja move, next level stuff. Suspension of disbelief 2.0. Kings employed court jesters for a reason. The most powerful ruler in the land kept a funny guy around. On the surface, it makes sense. Keep everybody happy, keep things light, a little comic relief, but there's actually some nuance. A king realized how easy it was to get an echo chamber to have yes-men, to have people tell you what you wanted to hear. You don't have to ascend to the rank of king to start getting that. It's so easy to surround yourself with people who agree with you, people who tell you what you want to hear. This isn't bad, but there's a balance. We've all got blind spots. The more powerful or prominent somebody gets, the more a blind spot could be detrimental, not just to them, but to a lot of people. So a wise king employed the court jester to say the thing that nobody else would say. Being funny made a tough pill easier to swallow. Every jester knew this. If they took it too far, they could still be executed. The king was in charge. There's a balance here. When I say we've got to learn to listen to our critics, I'm not saying we give them too much power. Teddy Roosevelt said this, It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena. There's a tension here, something to wrestle with. How do we listen to the critic, but not let them count? Kipling wrote a poem called If. Here's the line that helped me make sense of that. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, or walk with kings nor lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you, but none too much. There's two things. You've got to hold on to both, but they seem contradictory. In reality, it's like the wings of a bird. It needs both to fly. Or this is why I say we wrestle with it. Israel is defined by wrestling. Ethnic Jews are descendants of Israel. They can trace their family tree back to this person. Religiously, Christians were grafted into that family tree. Israel was a real person who lived in a real time, in a real place. He was defined by wrestling. When he was born, his parents called him Jacob. 
Then later in life, much later in life, after he was successful, had started a family, he had an experience and took on a new name, Israel. Translate Israel into English and you get a sentence, wrestled with God. I'm going to paint with a really broad brushstroke here. If you want the whole story, I'll put a link in the show notes. In that culture at that time, two things were important. A blessing and a birthright. A bigger blessing and a bigger birthright went to the oldest son. Jacob's twin brother, Esau, he was the older son. By milliseconds, but he was the older son nonetheless. Jacob swindled his brother out of a birthright. When his father got close to death, he deceived him, got the blessing, and headed out of town. Decades pass and he becomes what anybody would argue is successful. Then he's put in a situation where he has to see his brother again. Either you deal with your stuff or your stuff deals with you. That's a fact of life. It's true for me, it's true for you, and it was true for Jacob. Before seeing his brother, there's this weird flex. He parades his flocks, his money, his family in front of his brother. Rather than seeing him that day, he camps all by himself on the other side of the river. The author is explicit. Jacob's alone. The next thing you know, he's wrestling with a man. Later, he's wrestling with an angel. Angel means messenger. When this text is read in context, that makes things even blurrier. In a Hebrew lens, that angel could actually be God. Is Jacob wrestling with himself, a message, the messenger, or God? The story leaves room for all of that because the answer is yes. Thinking this is a historical story about Jacob is accurate. Unfortunately, it misses the truth. The truth isn't merely that wrestling happened, but that it happens. Without hearing a message, there's nothing to wrestle with. A king realized their position kept them insulated. There were some messages they wouldn't hear, so they employed a jester. A comic corrective made it easier to hear, but they still needed to wrestle. They needed to wrestle with the message and with themselves. Wrestling with the truth is another way we stand under it. Jacob's wrestling defined him. It became his name. Israel means wrestling. Wrestling defined this person. It defined the people group that took on his name. Any person who's honest is defined by what they wrestle with. I needed to wrestle with a comment, a critique, a question. I heard it from my atheist friends often, but on this one, I couldn't suspend my disbelief. It took decades and degrees before I was ready to unpack this. I wouldn't wrestle because I was afraid what they were saying was true. I could manipulate it and minimize it and twist it, but in reality, I just didn't like my answer. I don't know where, but I adopted a defensive posture. My atheist friends asked, why did God put that tree in the garden? They really wanted to know. Years before in Sunday school, I asked the same question. My guess is you have too. Anybody who's been exposed to that story asks that question. The tree we're talking about, that tree, is the tree of knowledge of good, that's tov, and evil. When tov got lost in translation, giving an accurate answer became impossible. This is an important question and the answer really matters. 
The two answers I hear over and over, free will and some kind of test. Free will, people would have had that without the tree of knowledge of good and evil. There were plenty of choices to be made. What foods to eat, how to organize the garden. They didn't need that tree to have free will. Claiming the tree of knowledge of good and evil was put in the garden as a test. This isn't just inaccurate or wrong. It paints a picture of God. Oh, how can I tell you? Let me tell you about a psychology study done in 1972. I learned about this when I went to college and took my freshman psych class. A grad aide who all the girls crushed on led the lab. A study has to be observable, measurable, and repeatable, he said. Our assignment focused on repeatable. We were to do the experiment, but change one variable. The original Stanford University experiment was on delayed gratification. They took a kid, put him in a room, and put a marshmallow in front of them. They could have the marshmallow. It was theirs. Or they could wait a little bit and have two marshmallows. The researcher left the room, obviously, to get the marshmallow. And the whole thing was videotaped. You don't have to have a PhD in psychology to guess what happened next. The vast majority of the kids ate the marshmallow. It was my freshman year in college. I was focused on getting a girl's attention. She changed the variable from a marshmallow to a cookie. To this day, I call it the Stanford cookie experiment. Everybody changed the reward. Most of the time it was candy or cookies, anything but a marshmallow. A few people made the reward bigger. Three marshmallows, five marshmallows, 10 marshmallows as a reward. I wanted to get somebody's attention, so I thought out of the box. What if you made a punishment? I got somebody's attention all right. The guy leading the lab, that graduate assistant all the girls were crushing on, his focus was totally on me. He asked what I was thinking. I said something about telling kids not to eat the marshmallow, that it would make them sick. He nodded yes and said, as long as you don't hurt anybody. The girl who changed the marshmallow to a cookie rolled her eyes. It's important to remember that this was just a thought experiment. Nobody was actually gonna do this. As I walked home, I wondered what would have happened if I took it to the next level. If I put something in a kid's tummy that made him sick. At a conference I was sharing this story, when I said put something in it that would make him sick, I got a reaction from the audience that I misread. So I took it up a notch. I said, what if you put something in it that would kill a child? And the audience turned on me. How would they describe somebody who did that? Who set out a test for a kid that would kill him? Would you call them a monster? That's when I discovered the obscenicon. Hashtag, at sign, exclamation point, dollar sign. When I write it out, I say God's not A, and then I put the N in parentheses because I don't know the word that would describe somebody who would do that. If poisoning a kid makes you a monster, what kind of test is it to put something in the middle of a garden that if people eat, they not only die, it ushers in all pain and all suffering. It was nearly two decades until I finally wrestled with this. Sometimes it takes time. 17 years after that psych class, my then seven-year-old daughter had her first hospitalization. She's 19 now. For 12 years, 
as a family, we've battled with major health concerns. The very first time, she went to the hospital for what they called then reflexive sympathetic dystrophy. She had hurt her elbow, but her jaw reacted with the pain. That's what RSD does. It's pain without an injury. When I say pain, not just hurting, but swelling, bruising, all the things you'd get with an injury, but with no cause. It took forever to diagnose. Back then, one of the treatments was contrast baths. Nerves aren't a dimmer switch. It's an on-off thing. When she'd dip her arm into water, the same nerves would fire as if you and I were being burnt with acid. I saw pain and suffering firsthand. Our local hospital couldn't deal with it, so we'd have to drive a couple hours for her follow-up visits. I was a pastor at the time, and the children's hospital was attached to the adult hospital by a skyway. One of the guys in my church had just been diagnosed with cancer and was undergoing treatments, and Adeline had two appointments on the same day. So we went to her first appointment, walked over to visit the guy that went to my church, and then went to her second appointment. When Adeline was experiencing her own pain and suffering, she didn't ask the deep question. When we walked across the sky bridge and she saw a guy she knew from church hurting as bad as he was, that's what had her ask the question. Walking across the sky bridge, she asked the same question my atheist friend had. Why does God let this happen? I had a moment of clarity. I was already a pastor, and in my tribe, you have to study Hebrew and Greek before you can be ordained. We stepped to the side. I told her about Tov without using the word Tov. I told her that each and every one of the doctors and nurses and medical staff had something to do. That each and every one of them had a purpose. That if each and every one of us finds the thing we're supposed to do, somebody eventually would be able to help all these people. I've cleaned it up, but what I was telling her is exactly what I'm telling you. If you don't live your tove, part of creation is left undone. Let's flip that. If every person lives their tove, creation is brought into its fullness. How many diseases do we have cures for? Because somebody lived their tove. That's why this is so important to me. I'll be the first to admit that I did not answer her question that day. I reframed it in light of tove. In the first episode, I mentioned that I became a pastor because of one of my Jewish mentors. When I first went to grad school, it was to study communication. There, I got hooked on semiotics. Semiotics is the study of signs and symbols. To keep it really simple, a symbol has two parts. The signifier, that's an image or an icon or a word, and what it points to. That's called the signified. It doesn't take a lot to figure out the signifier, but figuring out what it points to, that's where the fun is. That's semiotics. This is why if you've ever been to Disney, they point with either two fingers or their whole hand. In some cultures, pointing with one finger signifies something very different. 
Let me give you another example. At tax time, I asked my wife, what's your social? What I was expecting is a nine-digit number, something to put on a tax form. What she said is, at potential guacamole. She gave me her Instagram handle. One signifier can point to a couple different signifieds. In way of refresher, or maybe this is your first exposure, tov is a word that gets translated as good. Sometimes good means moral. Sometimes good means mediocre. It hasn't always been that way. Words change meaning over time. Good was the best translation when the translators did their work. But tov doesn't mean mediocre, and it doesn't mean moral. Tov means multiplication. When something tov multiplies, it also has truth and beauty linked in there. We learn that all from the poem that sets the stage and opens the Bible. I mentioned that last episode. The Bible begins with a poem. In order to understand tov, we have to stand under the literary rules of a poem. The Bible does open with a poem, the way it's currently organized. The people who first heard it were the newly freed slaves coming out of Egypt. Any Star Wars fan faces the same problem, at least if they're my age. Episode 4, 5, and 6, the original trilogy, came out first. It wasn't until I was in college that the prequels, episode 1, 2, and 3, came out. When I needed to introduce my daughters to Star Wars, I didn't know where to start. The first thing wasn't the first thing. The same issue is true with the Bible. The people that were alive when it was written were the newly freed slaves written about in Exodus. That poem that opens the Bible and sets the stage for all creation, they were the first ones to hear it. As they understood tov means multiplication, the best example of tov, the one who had multiplied the most, was the king they had just been freed from. So much of his multiplication happened on their backs. I wonder, had the scabs even healed into scars when they heard that first poem? What gets interesting is the toviest person, I just made up that word, toviest, didn't embrace there is more than enough. Even if this king had a jester, he would have executed him for asking him to suspend his disbelief and accept that there was more than enough. This king didn't work from abundance, but scarcity. If anybody should have embraced abundance, it was this king. He didn't have storehouses. He had store cities, two of them, entire cities dedicated to storing surplus. There's a hip-hop artist named Propaganda. In one of his raps, he asks the question, what if the Egyptians and Israel's joined forces? Can you imagine? The reason they didn't is Pharaoh worked from scarcity. The Israelites started growing in number. Pharaoh saw them as a threat, and he ordered the killing of all the baby boys. This was his workforce. When people struggle that tov means multiplication, they're in great company. The first people to hear that creation poem, multiplication met oppression. It also meant dehumanization. That's always the first step to oppressing people. In the book of Exodus, there's no names, at least at the very beginning. This isn't true just for the Israelites. Pharaoh himself is never given a name. 
A little insider baseball here. Pharaoh claimed to be the incarnation of the sun god. That's how he could do so much oppression. Titles can be really helpful in telling you something about a person, but be very careful because titles can dehumanize. I was amazed when retirees would come into my office. For years, they'd say, I'm the blank. You can fill it in with whatever the occupation was. But when they stepped out of that occupation, they asked the question, who am I? When we dehumanize ourselves, we can start saying things like, it's not personal, it's just business. The fact is, it's often personal. The reason Exodus opens and people don't have names is because they weren't seen as people. So the oppressed group isn't seen as people, and the oppressor doesn't see himself as a person. This is where it gets interesting. The word evil, the one that's used in the tree of knowledge of tov and evil, is ra. This isn't even a Hebrew word. Ra is the name of the sun god that Pharaoh claimed to be the incarnation of. I believe Moses was the one who wrote this down, and when he did, he had to pick a word. The word that he picked wasn't even Hebrew. It's what's called bilingual wordplay. Ra is the word for evil. Bilingual wordplay is a big academic term, but you see it in hip-hop. It's when they switch into Spanglish, part Spanish, part English. When there's an oppressed culture, and they take a word that was used to oppress them back, there's something redemptive about it. The picture that Moses is trying to paint, he painted it to those first hearers so well, is that anything tov can multiply so much that it keeps others, and even itself, from living tov. This is what ra means. Anything Tov has the potential to multiply so much that it becomes Ra. For the first hearers, this was something they experienced. Putting the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden, the tree of Tov and Ra, was just giving information. Before the tree was there, something that multiplies could multiply so much that it keeps other things from finding their Tov, let alone multiplying. Putting the tree in the garden was giving people information that they needed. It wasn't changing the story. We'll dive into that information a little bit next episode. But for now, describing a potential is a totally different reason than testing somebody. That tree makes sense in the garden. That tree fits the whole arc of the Bible. Understanding the tree of knowledge of good and evil properly, the tree of Tov and Ra, there's no question, no defense, and God's not a Oh, I have so much more to cover, but this is just one episode. After Israel had spent the night wrestling, as the sun came up, his hip got wrenched out of socket. There's ways that people still honor that today. I imagine from that point on, he walked with a limp. It was a painful reminder of the wrestling and the transformation that happened. If you've ever injured your hip, you know it makes you do one thing. Slow down. I encourage you to do that this week. Slow down. Wrestle with Tove. 
wrestle with Ra. Let these concepts transform you. This has been episode three of the Find Your Tove podcast. I'm Henry Graff. As you step even more deeply into living your Tove, grace and peace.